0: Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm
1: Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad.
0: In this episode, I want to talk about a few issues relating to public education in Arizona. Uh, First, I want to touch on school funding and the state budget, and then we'll talk about charter schools and their political situation here in the state. Last week, Governor Ducey put out a budget. He made a state-of-the-state state speech addressing his priorities uh, as well. My first question is this, is how likely is it that Ducey will be able to get his priorities passed? He wants $400 million in grants for academic uh, remediation. He wants a tax cut. He wants to keep a billion dollars in the rainy day fund. Um, Republicans have a narrow majority in the state House and the Senate, uh, but the party is very divided. The official party just censored Ducey this past weekend. Uh, What's your sense regarding uh, his influence, Ducey's influence on the legislative process, and uh, do you think he will get his agenda passed as he would like to? I don't think
1: that Ducey uh, personally... Um, has a great deal of influence on the Arizona legislature uh, at present. Um, I don't think that there's a sense of personal loyalty um, to him uh, that would give uh, cause lawmakers to give deference uh, to him if there were disagreements. However, I believe that there is a broad consensus Uh, between the governor and Republican members of the legislature uh, about um, what should be done uh, in many of these areas. I think that there is uh, pretty much broad spread agreement among Republican lawmakers about doing something on taxes. Um, I uh, don't know what the reaction has been to his proposal uh, to spend close to four hundred million dollars on uh, remediation uh, efforts um, towards the end of this school year and over summer school, um, but I think he's got a com- he's made a compelling case that that's where the focus should be. I've been critical of the lack of specificity um, in it, uh, but I I think that that uh, he's likely to find support. Um, for putting an emphasis on that, given what is universally accepted as a decline in learning as a result of schools trying to cope um, with teaching in a COVID environment.
0: What about the rainy day fund, though? Because that seems like, you know, it seems like, okay, maybe some of those other things, I, want, I do want to touch on the tax reform uh, thing in just a second, um, but some of these other things, it might be some natural agreement, um, with, you know, with Republicans on how to, how to approach the budget, but something like the rainy day fund doesn't seem like it's a naturally conservative idea to, to leave a uh, billion dollars that could be spent just sitting there in a bank account. Um, but it seems like that is something that for him, it's kind of a legacy that he cares about that, you know, he went from a billion dollars in the hole when he first became governor to having a billion dollars now in a rainy day fund, uh, is he? It seems like that would be an easy one to take money from to fulfill a more, you know, politically popular priorities. Do you think that's something that he's going to struggle uh, keeping in his in his budget at the end of the day?
1: Um, I doubt it. Uh, the Democrats would like to bust the rainy day fund and and spend uh, large portions of it, um, but um, state revenue growth has been extremely healthy. And I think there are ample resources without touching the rainy day fund uh, to uh, fund all the spending uh, that Republican legislators will want to make. So the question becomes, can um, the Republican leadership hold the two respective caucuses together uh, to pass a Republican uh, only budget, or a budget that doesn't depend upon Democratic votes, or will there be internal problems within the caucuses that uh, require more of a bipartisan budget, in which case then the Democrats' desire to bust open the rainy day fund might come into play. I'm doubtful that we will get to that point. My my guess is, is that Ducey will get to leave office with his billion-dollar uh, rainy day fund intact um, and his political talking point of having inherited a billion-dollar deficit and leaving the state with a billion-dollar rainy day fund.
0: Are there any specific items that might, do you think, split the um, Republican-only budget, um, or is that just kind of un- is there anything, was there anything in your mind that you were, you were thinking specifically might be the be the splitting points, or is that just a possibility? I, depending it, on how the session goes.
1: Paradoxically, I, this is a more unified uh, caucus, even though the numbers are are smaller um, than in past years. There just aren't um, a lot of philosoph- there, There's not a, a lot of philosophical difference um, within these republican caucuses um so if it gets tripped up paradoxically it's more likely to be over small things um someone's got a pet bill bill that someone else is holding so they decide to hold their vote on the budget until they get their pet bill through Um, that very well uh, may happen it happened uh, to a certain extent at the end of the last session Um, but i believe that there's surprising um, broad spread uh, consensus among uh, the governor and Republican lawmakers um, that on the big stuff, um, despite the fact that it's so such a narrow margin in both houses.
0: So let's touch on 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 tax reform for a little bit. Uh, you were to column. Well, well, Ducey called for a tax cut in his uh, in his uh, speech and his budget. Uh, you were at a column basically calling for a wholesale reform of the tax system, saying that lawmakers should, um, in order to neutralize the negative effects of negative economic effects of Prop 208, um, to change the income tax levels. But but you also advocated for uh, enacting a different uh, tax, a, a business gross receipts tax, um, to raise to basically fill the money and even put more money than Prop 208 would have uh, provided into education um but it seems like uh, and and even if they don't enact that extra tax there's probably going to be an effort to lower taxes lower income taxes so that the um that the top marginal rate is less than uh than it normally would be with prop 208 now with the surcharge um how's that going to how's that going to fly uh, uh, just politically and um I mean, how do you sell that? Because even even for people that did not support Prop 208, um, it seems like well the 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 voters enacted it and and they voted for it and it, they have this particular surcharge uh, that they that they wanted to fund education. What what would be the justification, I guess, for Republicans saying, "Nope, we're gonna we're gonna lower taxes and and reduce the amount of money that's." Um, that's being drawn for for state revenue?
1: It it will be that we've we've got this enormous surplus, and um, this is something that we can afford to do while uh, continuing to fund uh, priorities and substantially increasing K-12 funding, even in addition to whatever additional money it might get from the Prop 208 surcharge. The uh, proposition narrowly passed, Uh, and uh, this is one thing, I've I've talked to some folks that have a better feel for the Arizona legislature's uh, mood and direction than I do, um, who believe that there's pretty unanimity among uh, Republicans in both caucuses uh, to do something to reduce taxes with a particular emphasis on income taxes. I don't think it will go over well politically for the reasons that you mentioned. It is sort of undermining what uh, voters approved, however narrowly they approved it. Um, But I think that there is uh, the will and it appears the votes uh, to do something comparable within the range of what uh, the governor is talking about. Now there isn't the appetite in the legislature or by the governor to do what I'm talking about, uh, which would be a net increase in state revenues, not a uh, decrease in state revenues. But there is a recognition outside the legislature, uh, particularly in business community circles, that there is a unusual political opportunity here, uh, given the need to Uh, amend the state constitutional aggregate spending limit on education for Prop 203's extra money to even get spent and even possibly to spend what the legislature will appropriate independently of Prop 208. Uh, And there is within the business community great alarm uh, over the potential economic consequences of having one of the highest marginal income tax rates in the country. The business community has been intrigued by those kind of ideas for a while now. Uh, It's never been willing to buck the governor's bottom line of no net tax increase on my watch, uh, whether the passage of Proposition 208 and the failure of what the governor proposes or what the legislature is likely to do to significantly counteract the potential negative consequences of Prop 208's high marginal tax rate. Um, Whether that will embolden the business community to move independently uh, of the governor and try to put together a broad coalition uh, for a a larger agenda, I think is just um, completely unknowable at this point. But yeah, I do I, mean, I do believe those discussions will take place.
0: It just seem I mean it just seems like I mean the whole the main selling point of Prop two oh eight was like our legislature will not fund our legislature won't fund education properly. You've got to do it yourself by passing this tax initiative. And if the first response is this legislature um you know cutting cutting the legs under under this under this tax initiative and we already know that whatever is funded, they'll, it, you know, it won't be enough to, you know, whatever. It's not going to change the uh, or solve the the teacher shortage and, and all these other things. There's always going to be a need for more. So it just seems like a a very easy message in in uh, in 2022. Whatever the legislative distri- districts are to say. The only way we can actually fund education is to elect a Democrat majorities. I don't disagree
1: with your um, political analysis. Uh, I don't think that this will uh, go over well politically, but it does appear that Republicans in the legislature and the governor are fairly united on doing something um, to cut taxes roughly in the range that the governor
0: has identified. Well, let's switch gears here and talk about charter schools, and um, I'm just I'm just interested in their political sort of situation and dynamics, uh, it's perhaps in flux. But let's let's explore that. Um, it's it's uh, very frequent to, to hear Democrats either on social media or um, in, in, in articles uh, criticizing charter schools, blaming them for being greedy, for getting rich off kids, and that the overall effect of, of schools choice initiatives will weaken traditional public schools. And this uh, this fierce opposition, from what I can tell, is not necessarily grounded in objective analysis of, of charter student outcomes, uh, but it seems like it's a result of a political alliance between uh, Democrats and, and teachers unions. Unions uh, have been increasingly hostile uh, to charters. Um, and so now, now you have, you know, charter school advocates sort of reliant on the Republican Party. Do you see any way that these alliances might get untangled? Like, for example, do you ever think that charter school advocates would start courting Democratic support, uh, especially in a, a state like Arizona, which might be trending blue? And is it is it possible for a pro-charter Democrat to... Uh, to succeed politically? I I
1: think that the political landscape um, is uh, moving to a certain degree in the directions that you uh, indicate. The uh, charter school uh, movement has been highly successful in terms of attracting students um, for a decade or so now, virtually all the growth in student enrollment in Arizona uh, has accrued to charter schools. There are now over 200,000 Arizona students attending charter schools, roughly 20% of um, all students in the state. But Uh, Even though that is the preference of parents and students, there's not been much of an effort to organize that uh, as a counterforce politically to uh, the anti-charter efforts, uh, which are, I believe you're correct, led primarily by the teachers union movement to a lesser extent by district school officials. The Charter School Association, the lobbying group for the charters, have upped their political game of, of late. Uh, Jake Logan, who was instrumental in uh, John Kyle's campaigns, uh, has been appointed to head up the organization. Uh, he's a um, very savvy and effective um, political mind. Uh, The association has hired uh, Matt Ladner uh, to to do research, and Matt is one of the foremost uh, education experts in the entire country. Um, I'm not sure that he wasn't more effective on behalf of charters when he was independent of the association, uh, but certainly in terms of marshalling information and arguments, the industry has upped its game. It's upped its game politically. Now it's a nascent organizing effort. So we will see whether uh, uh, the association and the industry can become more of a political force in its own right, rather than simply relying on the Republican instincts in favor of school choice philosophically. I I am hopeful that uh, the organizing efforts that are underway will bear fruit. And we can return to where the charter school movement began. The charter school movement began with strong democratic support, particularly within minority communities. Yeah, Uh, And that should still be the case today.
0: But why, because it it seems like, like I'm hearing what a lot of the Democrat leaders say and advocate for, it seems like if they got the majority, like if they had gotten the majority this year or if they, if they get the majority in, in 2022, it seems like their policies would essentially, you know, get rid of all the things that charter schools that make charter schools, charter schools, you know, they, 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 they say like leveling the playing field, but they're oftentimes calling for policies that, that that eliminate the you know the freedoms and the um and, and the unique aspects that make charter schools charter schools um is that your sense that 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 is what they're currently calling for and why why is that why is there such that that the disconnect there um i guess i guess we've the disconnect perhaps is is is, is we've already talked about but um what is the what is the avenue towards getting uh, back into that uh into that step uh, given the the disparity on what that kind of is a popular democrat platform now that you hear it being talked about um versus what it could be i mean i know there was a there was a reform bill that um was brought up by the charter school movement uh, a couple sessions ago that barely barely came up short but
1: well the, the 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 democrats are in part um catering to a political constituency the teachers union and um the teachers union hasn't successfully organized in charter schools and aren't un- unlikely to do so so you've got a turf battle there that the democrats Receive political support from the teachers unions, and so they're supporting their friends in the teachers unions. There's also a democratic um, suspicion of the contracting out model, uh, where you use private organizations, even nonprofit ones, which is what, which is the form that most charters have taken, uh, and have uh, them do a government service uh And they particularly don't like the idea of people making uh, good money, big money, uh, providing that service uh, when it comes to k twelve education. The growth of the charter school movement and the academic gains that have been achieved through it have been primarily the result of large multi-site charter systems and the reforms that the Democrats and some former Republican legislators have advocated uh, would, uh, in essence, blow that system apart uh, and, uh, and return charters to being principally, if not exclusively, mom and pop one-off operations. Uh, so uh, it really, the, the there there needs to be brought to bear, countervailing political pressure by charter school um, parents uh, and uh, a education campaign on the academic gains that are occurring in minority communities as a result of the existence of charter school opportunities. Uh, I think both of those are possible. And again, uh, it's ironic uh, because at the beginning of the charter school movement, there was strong support for it within minority communities. uh, And it continues to be an incredibly popular option where it's offered in minority communities as an alternative to and the district
0: schools. It's funny you 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 describe those uh, those networks as being sort of the the almost like the backbone of the of the charter school movement now, which is maybe wasn't what it was thought to be, or, or people didn't think it was going to be in the beginning. I want to read just a short section of uh, this Jonathan Chait article. Uh, he's a, he's a writer at New York Magazine. He wrote an interesting piece on, on kind of making those same points, but then on these political uh, dynamics, uh, he points out, first of all, that that one of the problems in, in terms of the public is the public still doesn't know much about charter schools. And and I think if you, if you asked a random person, they might have a completely you know, different or or, or misinformed uh, view of what charters actually are—the fact that they're free, uh, that they're public schools, um, and um, and they're not allowed to teach religious instruction and stuff like that. He he talks about that, but then he says this, um, and, and this is kind of a little, maybe different than than how you perceive charter schools. But he says that the, even the underlying theory behind what makes charter schools work is shifted. He says, from the beginning, the model has been fundamentally Darwinian. The idea that charters uh, in any given area will experiment with different styles of learning, causing the best ones to attract students and the inferior ones. To up their game or shut down. And initially, he writes, the reformers imagine this kill or be killed pressure will be generated chiefly by parents who would scrutinize performance statistics and enroll their children accordingly. But he says this dynamic has mostly failed, and uh, because of the the comparison uh, aspect is too difficult and complex, and that it has not done that that has not done that much to. Um, help good schools meet bad ones he he points that the charter school author authorizers um, have a more important role um, than, than originally thought rather than just a free market um, and he talks about these these models that have emerged I mean here in Arizona they've got great hearts imagine schools basis and they've kind of you know, the, these these networks have kind of become um, the backbone. But what is your what is your take on his critique of sort of the free market philosophy behind him? Well, I, he
1: instead of this being a Darwinian competition, uh, it's a uh, it's a competition to uh, attract parents, Uh, with what the parents perceive to be the best educational environment and opportunity for their kids. And uh, in Arizona, it's been hugely successful. The academic gains among charter students in Arizona uh, rival those of students from any high-performing state in the country. And the fact that competition... Rises All Boats has also been borne out because the gains in Arizona district schools uh, have also been well above the national average. So there's little question from the Arizona experience, and Matt Ladner, who we discussed previously, has done as much to document this as anyone, uh, that uh, the charter movement in Arizona has uh, created... Enormous academic gains and academic gains within minority uh, c- and low-income uh, communities. Uh, so, um, I mean, he obviously comes from a biased perspective to begin with. And in Arizona, a pretty much a free market approach has been taken. It's it's relatively easy in Arizona to uh, get approval to open up. A charter school. There's light regulatory hurdles that you have to cross, and primarily dealing with financial stability and solvency. That's not true in most other states. In most other states, there's uh, a limit on the number of charter schools there can be. Uh, Oftentimes, you need to have approval from the district that you want to compete with in order to open up a school. Uh, And so Uh, you've not achieved in other states the critical mass of charter competition that we've achieved in Arizona. And I think Arizona has demonstrated that uh, the theory of competition works. And the notion that comparisons are too difficult for parents to make, parents know when their kids are happy. They know when they're happy with the school that they're Uh, student attends. They might not be able to know um, how many uh, standard deviation gains have been made between one group of kids and another group of kids. Um, But one of the things that from the beginning was documented was that parent satisfaction when when they moved their students from a district school to a charter school went way up. That was documented. That's value in and of itself. Um, So I think he is both mis—he is uh, not—he is not evaluating the market system, which doesn't exist in many places other uh, than uh, Arizona, and he's selling parents short in terms of their ability to understand uh, what's best for their students, even if they can't recite for you the granular details of what constitutes that. They know when their child uh, is feels safer, uh, feels more secure, is learning more, where they've got an environment that the parent feels comfortable. Those are all things that parents uh, are quite capable of evaluating and do in Arizona, where they have not only vast choice between district and charter schools, But among district schools, there's actually more school choice exercised in Arizona um, from district school to district school than there is from district school to charter schools.
0: And that's that's is that that's probably not the case in a lot of other states, right? Oh, no, we
1: we are on the leading edge of this theory uh, of uh, having a marketplace for education and letting money follow the students. We don't do it enough. We don't have enough money following the students. Uh, but it's been, um, highly successful by virtually any objective measure.
0: Okay. Final, uh, final quick question here about, uh, I guess it's kind of about school choice. One area where maybe we could use some more school choice and that's at the, uh, college level, university level, Um, you've advocated uh, before, and we've talked in this uh, podcast before about the possibility of community colleges getting permission to provide four-year degrees. A bill was uh, brought up and and discussed a a couple years ago, but didn't get enough traction. Given the uh, pandemic circumstances now, do you think the time is right for this new, for uh, for this change to be made? The, the, the time is past,
1: right in terms of serving the students of Arizona. Um, whether uh, the time is now riper politically uh, to actually get something done, uh, I'm skeptical about. One of the leading opponents uh, of it last year, a Republican, uh, isn't in the legislature this year. Uh, but um, this isn't. Uh, an idea that has caught on to the extent it should among democratic legislators. They actually should be leading the effort uh, for this uh, because it's a far, it would be a far more cost-effective and less intimidating uh, entryway uh, to four-year degrees uh, for low-income and my, minority kids uh, and far more flexibility uh, to accommodate schedules for people who need to work while they are helping to put themselves uh, through college that traction has not been gained yet within democratic circles and i don't know that there's unanimity among uh, republicans uh, in favor of it so I, I don't know what the political prospects of it are but it's overripe in terms of doing what would be best for arizona students
0: all right, final, final question. Uh, Tom Brady, the Buccaneers, is in his 10th Super Bowl, uh, 42 years old or something like that, playing the Chiefs in a couple of weeks. Who you got Who you got in the Super Bowl, you think? Um, old man Tom Brady is going to come through?
1: <laughs> You're just toying with me because you know that until you mentioned it, um, I didn't even know who was playing in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and the thing I know most recently about Tom Brady was uh, – uh actually was he one of the ones that played in the uh oh Roy yeah he Nick played
0: Nicholson? he played in that in that first golf match the match yeah that that's with, the last uh, thing i know about tom brady with tiger <laughs> <laughs> what
1: about you you follow this more closely Who's your no player? i don't
0: i don't i don't know i the only i think the only playoff game i watched was the semifinals last time so i haven't been following too closely but just hoping for uh some good games and Hopefully none of them get COVID before, before the Super Bowl. That would be not very good. Um, but anyways, thanks everybody for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you.